If you want to make an audiobook, go to thetalkingbook.org. That's thetalkingbook.org. Check out these amazing writers, narrators, indie publishers. Come to Asheville. We record books in a booth. Here's the show. Hey everybody, this is Chris Hartram and uh, this is for the Talking Book Podcast. That's what you're listening to. It's a podcast where you hear uh, your favorite writers uh, reading their work. And today I have new work from the great Jeff Jackson, who is the author of Mira Corpora, which we produced late last year. I hope everyone is well. We're all okay here. It's a beautiful day in Asheville, North Carolina, which is where you should be here with me, and I don't know why you're not here. You could be recording your book, drinking with us, telling jokes, and other things people do for fun. Um, what else? I'm officiating my friend's wedding next week, so I'm also sitting here trying to write a little thing to say. And it's not as easy as I had originally thought it would be. I'll tell you, I was, uh, you know, I was thinking... You have to write something that is memorable enough for their wedding day. Maybe one of the most memorable, you know, single moments in somebody's life, at least in theory. Um, has anyone ever done this? Has anyone else ever had to do this? I mean, I guess so. It must happen all the time. But, you know, if you have any tips, send me some tips. Shoot some tips my way on officiating your friend's wedding. Um, anyway, <clears throat> today... We have a writer I love named Jeff Jackson. He's a novelist, playwright, visual artist, and songwriter. Jeff's first novel, Mira Corpora, which we put out as an audiobook, uh, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. And um, I asked Jeff recently to record something uh, for me for the podcast because I love his writing and I want more people to uh, to listen to Mira Corpora. Um, Narrated by Dylan DeJanis. Uh, this is this is what you're about to hear. This is from his forthcoming novel, tentatively titled White Zones. And I think you're going to like it. Here now is the author, Jeff Jackson. I picture the woman standing before the mirror, struggling not to hyperventilate. She smooths her short blonde curls, scours away the black smudges of mascara, and straightens her white blouse. There's nobody else in the bathroom. She shuts her eyes and counts backward from a hundred, odd numbers only, just like I taught her. You'll never know who turned you in. That's what the graffiti says. The warning has been precisely etched in the gray plastic surface of the stall. It appears along the bottom edge, far away from the fresco of intricate tags and warring insults. The words are surrounded by a cluster of numbers that might be codes or contacts for cell phones strategically missing a digit or two. It feels like she stumbled upon a clandestine bulletin board or perhaps a cry for help. The woman steps into the fast food cafe and scans the seating area. There are only a few people in here this time of night, and the man with the black beard isn't one of them. She's certain he was following her, but hopefully ducking in here scared him off. The coffee she ordered waits for her at the front counter. Steam swirls around the top of the paper cup. 
She sits in a corner booth with her back to the wall so she can watch the entrance. The weather's turned chilly, but the restaurant runs their air conditioning full tilt, maybe to keep people like her from lingering. She sips her coffee with both hands, trying to stay warm. It's not smart to be out alone at night, but this was the only time she could meet Z. She wonders if it was worth it. Her phone lights up, but she doesn't answer. She tells herself it's a precaution, but she also isn't in the mood to talk. The visit with Z has left her depressed and depleted. The restaurant's sound system blasts sparkly pop hits, pre-selected by corporate headquarters, every syllable a fresh lie. The music seems designed to enhance the loneliness she feels, along with the harsh lighting that irradiates the other souls spread out among the brightly colored plastic furniture. A few booths away, a teenage couple are laughing while they feed each other french fries, making a game of trying to bite each other's fingertips. Further away, a girl wearing a hijab picks at a hamburger while streaming pirate radio through her phone, her long eyelashes blinking in time to the distorted electronic rhythms. At the far end of the dining area, a young man in a do-rag sits, elbows propped on the table, hunched over a book. The woman marvels at how this old technology can still transmit subversive ideas, hiding them in plain sight between paper covers, the authorities never bothering to regulate it because so few people bother to read. Nobody has come inside for several minutes now. The streets surrounding the restaurant appear deserted. The woman decides it's safe to continue on her way home. She steps into the foggy mist, whose strands are streaked by the amber glow of the fast food cafe's sign. She walks past the congested drive through lane, which contains only a few cars. It's mostly people on bicycles, plus a mother with her impatient kids who've made a game of hopping between the stripes, all of them waiting their turn at the window. Beyond the restaurant, the neighborhood thins out. The avenues are eerily empty, except for a few stray dogs. The night feels abandoned. On the corner, she watches a shadowy man in a knit hat shout into his watch. He looks vaguely familiar, but doesn't attempt to follow her. She spots a bus up ahead, pointed in the wrong direction. It sits stalled at the stop sign, spewing clouds of exhaust. The woman peers at the rows of passengers sitting in the dimly lit interior, heads floating in the windows. Their waxy expressions reveal a mix of fear and resignation they probably wouldn't recognize as belonging to themselves. She swears that she can detect the daily doses of dread which have accrued in the deepening lines around their mouths. The glass between them could be a mirror. The woman continues to think about Z as she turns down the next block. She pulls her coat tight, wishing it was warmer. The street lights ahead are bleary halos. The moon is a silver rumor in a cloudy sky. Her phone rings again, but she doesn't answer. That's when she registers the black van trailing behind her. 
At the next corner, she walks toward a better lit street. The houses appear well-maintained and cars are parked in most driveways. She doesn't reach for her phone, unsure whether calling the police will make things worse. She maintains a steady pace and tells herself not to look over her shoulder. Without breaking her stride, she walks up the driveway, the first house with lighted windows, as if this was always her intended destination. She knocks on the door, wrapping her knuckles hard against the wooden frame, loud enough to make sure she's heard. Nobody answers, so she does it again. She peers inside the window through the sheer curtains, but the living room is empty. On the wooden coffee table, a lit cigarette lays in the ashtray, freshly abandoned. A thin thread of smoke rises toward the ceiling, unraveling as it ascends. She hurries down the porch steps, heading for the next house. The black van sits halfway down the block, parked between streetlights, engine idling. She walks briskly up the concrete path to the bungalow outlined with boxwood hedges. She bangs her fist against the door more forcefully than she intends. Music is playing inside. A dappled mix of acoustic guitar, electronic keyboards, lilting voices. Somebody must be home. Sure enough, through the glass, she spies a woman's silhouette flitting through the back of the house. She knocks again and again and again, adding an urgent rhythm to the recorded song. The music must be too loud. Hey, she shouts, hey. But there's no reply and nobody comes to the door. As she heads down the path, all the street lights shut off. It must have just turned 10 o'clock, the hour the municipal electricity rationing takes effect in this part of town. Maybe that sounds too dramatic, but that's probably how it happened. She scans the block. It's hard to be certain in the darkness, but she reassures herself that the van hasn't moved closer. Even so, she dials 911. Someone answers, but before she can say anything, the line goes dead. She calls again, but the line is busy. She tries once more, and this time, she can't even get a signal. Across the street, she spots a two-story house with its porch light on. She tells herself not to run, but then she's dashing into the road with wide strides, as if she's leaping from rock to rock across a roaring wa water, desperate to reach that beckoning glow. She's knocking too loud, but she can't help herself. Her fists beat against the doorframe until she hears someone inside approaching. She attempts to gather her words, to string together a simple but eloquent plea for assistance. On the other side of the door, she can hear somebody fumbling with the locks and her back spasms with relief. But instead of unfastening the bolts, they switch off the porch light. Down the block, the black van revs its engine and shifts out of neutral. It rolls slowly along the street toward her. Next house, the ranch home with the stucco exterior. The front door is a large rectangle of frosted glass that frames the light from inside. 
She presses the doorbell until the resounding chimes overlap, strikes her knuckles against the glass. No answer. She cups her hands around her mouth like a megaphone and starts to scream. Help! I'm being chased! Please, I need help! She barely recognizes her own high-pitched shriek as it echoes along the street, and this spooks her. A few seconds later, the lights inside go out. The black van sits at the curb opposite the house. It's close enough that she can see the driver behind the wheel. He's wearing a red ski mask. She tears off across the lawn. She's always been a good runner with marathon stamina. She can lose them by cutting through some backyards or reaching a street where people are outside or even make it all the way home. She sprints up the block, watching the remaining porch lights, one by one, extinguish. Two men leap from the rear of the van to pursue her. She refuses to look back and acknowledge them or the trailing vehicle. She pumps her arms and picks up the pace, reminding herself to breathe steady, though her mouth is open and lets loose a wail like a siren. The corner's in sight when she trips over some paving stones and tumbles onto a driveway, skidding face first across the asphalt. Her purse snaps and the contents scatter. Leather wallet, checkbook, compact mirror, eyeliner pens, tampons, takeout menus, spare change, cell phone, wadded up tissues. Rolling toward the street, with a lonely metallic jangle is my silver tube of turquoise lipstick that she was always borrowing. Her scalp is gashed. Blood trickles down her forehead. She looks dazed as she lies there on the blacktop, prone body surrounded by a pointless freeze of her daily possessions. The black van stops at the end of the driveway. The two pursuers stand on the lawn both of them wearing red ski masks. They're joined by a third, a middle-aged man with short-cropped blonde hair and bristling mustache. His exact description doesn't matter because she's never seen him. But she's chilled to realize these men have grown so confident that some no longer bother to conceal their identity. As they encircle her, she pushes herself off the ground with her skinned palms. She stands up to face the men as they come closer, blinking the red out of her eyes, unbowed. This last part is the one I don't want to picture, but I can imagine how it goes down all the same. I have no doubt that she throws hard punches, that she does her best to kick them in the balls that she bites anyone who clamps his hand over her mouth to stifle her screams, that she draws blood and pulls hair and leaves bruises. And I have no doubt that in the end, none of it matters. They still drag her thrashing into the black van and slide the door behind them. And this is the last anyone will see of her. Before they leave, the men carefully collect the contents of the spilled purse. Every scrap of possible identification down to the balled up tissues and my lipstick to ensure her disappearance 
is that much more complete. The residents of the block silently observe this abduction from their darkened windows, faces peering through the folds of gathered curtains. They repeat to themselves that this isn't what it seems, erasing their memories at the very moment they're etched, practicing this in preparation for never picking up the phone to report the crime. They refuse to entertain the possibility that they could have anything in common with a person who finds themselves sprinting down an unfamiliar street at night, pursued by a van full of strangers, pleading for help with a mouthful of blood, that this person did not willfully bring this fate upon herself, that someday this person could be them. Afterward, the black van circles the block in a leisurely victory lap, making sure the residents have every opportunity to appreciate its anonymous contours. It flashes its high beams, then turns down an unlit street, vanishing as thoroughly as if it had driven off the edge of a map. All right, that was Jeff Jackson reading from his forthcoming novel tentatively titled White Zones. Go to thetalkingbook.org and get his audiobook Mirror Corpora, which was originally published by $2 Radio in print. Also, go to thetalkingbook.org and uh, check out other new audiobooks from us, including Sleepovers by Ashley Bryant Phillips, The One on Earth, Collected Works of Mark Balmer, and The Diary of Anais Nen, Parts 1 and 2. My name is Chris Hartram. Um, send me some tips. I'll officiate your wedding. And, uh, okay. Yeah, that's it. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I knew that you were there Like an angel who has forsaken certainty Sleeping in the square I was lit before I knew the storm was passing over and the wind blew.